All right. Well, good afternoon, morning. It's morning, actually, here. It's about 1035 on a Monday morning. It is the last day of January. We're here at Fremont E Free. It's about 60 degrees. At least that's what the forecast is for today for the last day of January. So it's been a crazy year, Jim. Uh, we are in Acts 9, 1 to 19, talking about Saul's conversion. Now, I know we got out of order, but we're going back this week. I think it's a great passage, one yeah. that was really encouraging to me as I thought about it. So excited to talk about it this morning. Uh, would love to know, first of all, what your thoughts are, Jim, as you think back on Saul's conversion. Obviously, uh, not only is this a passage that has great significance in the history of the church, but it's right. also a passage that we're pretty familiar with. I mean, right. it's even made its way into the popular, popular lexicon of of um, the way our culture speaks, like people talk about having a Damascus Road experience, and, and that's a reference to this. So this is a well-known right. story. It's a critical one in church history, one that we've probably heard before, but as you reflect on it from yesterday, uh, thinking about how God uh, did this great work in Saul, what is it that stuck out to you? What, what is it that you're chewing on this morning, Jim? Yeah, and maybe to take the—I mean, you kind of broke it down versus— one through nine, and then ten through nineteen. I think that was a good way to break it down, and because I think there's things in both of those section sections that really were impacting to me. Sure. So maybe in in the first part, I mean, really just thinking about the power of Jesus, right? Who else can take a guy like Saul and do what he does to him but Jesus? I mean, nobody can do. Nobody can do that. To think that Saul went from this guy who wanted to destroy the church and turn him to a guy that influenced and grew the church more than any other human. Right. I mean, that's just a, that's just a testimony to what the power of Jesus can do. And I think that's really, like, man, that's really encouraging for me to remember when I'm thinking about people who I want to see changed and impacted by the gospel. Right. Right that I don't ever want to I don't ever want to give up on what Jesus can do in that person. Right. Uh because I think sometimes I can do that. Sometimes I can feel like, man, I don't know if anything's ever going to hurt ever is ever going to happen in this particular person's life. And yet, when you read this account, I should never get to the point where I think nothing is going to happen in that person's life. Right. Because if it can happen in Saul, it can happen in anybody. And just in the whole the whole thing, right? From persecutor to builder of the church. I mean, that is the whole spectrum of the change of Saul is just what is impacting. It's not like he was this terrible guy and he got saved and which is good and important, but that he got saved to this end, where we're still reading his books two thousand years later in order to help us grow in the gospel. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, I talked about this yesterday, that we tend to read stories like this, and we just read them in kind of a casual way and don't really think about, what, what would this be like? Um, and you can think about Ananias and his response and his trepidation, and you get it. Um, and then the passage that you preached on last week, which is actually the next passage where everyone's kind of concerned about him, except Barnabas sticks up for him. And again, if you think about who Saul was, that makes total sense. Um, you know, it's, it's easy for us to read it and be like, come on, guys, just be, be more gracious and be more understanding of how God works. But if the worst guy you knew in this town came to know Christ and all of a sudden was professing Christ, you would be a little bit skeptical. Um, so I do think it speaks to God's power. 
I think it also, uh, to what you were saying, it does, I, I think it should give us an encouragement to pursue lost causes um, and to not give up. I, I think we have a tendency to say no for people. Um, and, you know, this is true, not just as it relates to their spiritual walk, but, you know, we talk about this in, in church things like, you know, we think, oh, well, we could ask this person to do this, but they're probably too busy. But like we always say, well, we don't want to say no for them. We want to give them an opportunity to say yes or no. But I, I think spiritually we do that a lot. We think, well, yeah, that, that person is not real soft to the gospel. There, there's no way that they would be open to it. Like, so I'm just not going to really bring it up with them. They're just too hard around the edges or they're just too, they're just too far gone. I don't see how God could work in them. But I think in doing that, like we're, we're thinking in a very human way. Um, we're thinking like we're, it's it's almost as if we think, well, God only picks low-hanging fruit. And when the reality is that often he picks the fruit that's the hardest to get to. Um, and it's the people that are most unlikely that God often uses. And so, you know, I, I just think, I think we often downplay um, the way that God can work. And, mm. and because of that, we say no, and we don't, we don't relentlessly pursue lost people because we just think, oh, there's no way they'll come to know Christ. But, but Saul's story does remind us, no, it, that, that is often who God uses, is it's unlikely people. And so I, I think I would agree with you. I think there should absolutely be a sense here where we don't give up on people. Now, to be sure, like this is, this is a, a, a work of God, right? Like this, right. Is, this is an amazing thing. And we're not saying like, every lost cause, like it's a shoe in that they'll get in. Like, but what we are saying is like, let's not discount that God can do what seems like to us the impossible. Right. Because he often does. And so I, I think my, I guess my encouragement for myself and for you and for anyone listening is, you know, whoever it is that you've given up on, and, and there probably are some people, if I'm honest, there's some people that I could tick off in my life where I say, you know, I, I've shared with this person before, or I've never shared with them, but they just seem like they're too closed off to it. Like, so I probably won't share. Like, whoever it is that you checked off and say, ah, I just don't think that's possible. I think I think it's worth revisiting what it looks like to try to reach that person in light of what God does with here. God does here with Saul. Right. You know, something else I was thinking about that you mentioned yesterday was how this conversion experience of Saul is mentioned three times in the book. That it's mentioned twice towards the end of Acts when he's on his road to right. to uh, to Rome. And what I find interesting about Paul is that he never gets tired of telling his testimony. Right. You know, it's those two times also later in Acts. It's in Galatians chapter 1. It's in Philippians chapter 3. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Like, Paul has no problem telling his testimony. Right. Like, it's almost like you get this sense that he is like, Look at like look at who I was in my past. And I think that's really interesting because sometimes I've run into people that are like they don't really want to talk about their past. Right. Paul has no problem talking about his past, not to highlight his past, but to highlight this is the power of the gospel that worked in me. Right. And this is who I am now because of what the gospel has done in my life, in the power of the gospel to work in my life. He's not ashamed of talking about that because it highlights the greatness and the power of the gospel working in him. And I just think that that's a real, like, I don't think we should ever be ashamed of our testimony of saying, this is what God did in me. And right. just to highlight the wonder, the beauty, and the power of the saving work of Christ in sinners. Yeah. I think it's worth noting, though, too, like, that 
although what he does in Saul like seems more I guess powerful to us because of his past background like one of the things really I've, glamorous right yeah and one of the things I've noticed is that oftentimes people who have a more subtle story um, maybe feel even more like hesitant to share their story because they right. think well my story is not very exciting right but but here's the reality, like, and this is where I think what we talked about yesterday is important. Like Saul's greatest issue was not his persecution of the church or his murderous intent or any of that. His greatest issue that he rebelled against the Holy God and he was dead in his sins. And so if your story is, quote-unquote, more subtle and less glamorous and less exciting, you know, because maybe you grew up in the church and you came to know Christ at an early age, and, and therefore you feel like, well, I just don't have a very exciting testimony to share. I would say you're discounting what the most exciting element of the gospel is. It's not that you were rescued from this sordid past. It's that you were an enemy of God and you were rescued. And so I, I guess I would just encourage the person who feels like, yeah, my, my, my story is kind of boring and not very exciting. No, it's really exciting because you were rescued Absolutely. just like Saul was. Absolutely. Like, um, and and to, to your point, like I think... There is a way of sometimes making our testimonies about us, like, and you know, I, I know people who have dramatic stories, and sometimes I feel like they're delighting in telling like how wicked they were before, like, because it's almost like it's somehow highlighting them, like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. What Saul's doing when he's retelling his story is highlighting God's grace, like, right. and so I guess my encouragement, because I, I I hear this a lot, like from people that you know, like maybe I'm training them to share their testimony. I just hear them kind of like, well, my story is kind of boring. And I would just say, no, if if you were rescued, whether it was at the age of five before you had any great sin or the age of 30 after you'd lived a wild life, like it is a work of God. And it's worth testifying to and bearing witness to and saying, actually, for the person who is rescued when they're younger and, and grew up in the church and avoided a life of sin, that's a great blessing and actually a huge testament to God's grace too. Um, right. And so I think, I guess what I would say is like, I don't want Saul's story to be a discouragement for those who've been saved in more quote unquote ordinary ways, like right. um, to, to feel like, oh, well, my story is boring compared to Saul's. No, that the main element of your story, which is that you were dead and you were made alive, right. excuse me, is true for every Christian. Right. And therefore, every Christian has a really exciting story to share. There may right. not have been the blinding light and the, you know, the, the, the voice of Jesus encountering the risen Jesus on the road. But if we're a Christian, we have encountered Jesus. Right. And that's the part that we need to bear witness to. And right. so I, I guess I would just say, don't let Saul's story be a discouragement if you feel like your story is more ordinary. Right, right. So you, me, Saul, we were all equally dead in our sins absolutely and equally headed to hell and equally without hope right except for christ right and so the reality is is whether it's spectacular sins or more subtle sins there are still sins that separated us from god and nothing but jesus was going to rescue us right yep yeah so i mean you think i mean to try to give an analogy here like if there's a dead person on the bottom of the river and someone drags them up and revives them, or if there's a dead person just laying on a sidewalk, I guess you could say theoretically, oh, the person at the bottom of the river, that was more dramatic. But at the end of the day, isn't the part of the story that's the more amazing thing is that someone was dead and then they were made alive, right? right? Like, right. It's not how they were rescued, it's the fact that they were rescued. Right. And so whether your story is more dramatic or less dramatic, like... I think I would just say, well, let's let's not think in that way. Let's just think about what is the, what is the truly amazing thing that happens in regeneration. The amazing thing that happens is that you were dead and now you're alive. It's not that you were 
more dead or less dead, like you're dead right. and you were made alive. Like, and that's worth bearing witness to. And so I think that's, that's the part of Saul's story that I would say, don't let his <clears throat> dramatic nature of his story discourage you from thinking your story is less exciting. Like right. the bigger issue is that you were dead and you were made alive. Right. Right. So you mentioned, you mentioned Jim, that, um, there, that was kind of what stuck out to you in verses one to nine, but you said there's some stuff that stuck out to you in 10 to 19 too. Right. So I'm just curious, why don't you expand on okay, that? So I got a question to bridge the gap yeah, go here. Ahead. Yeah. Um, Saul blinded for three days. Yeah. Jesus didn't have to blind him, but Jesus does. So what's going on there? Why was Saul blinded for three days? Now, obviously, I think there's probably some obvious answers, but I'm wondering if there's something else going on there, because that's kind of a unique thing that happened to Saul, right? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I'm curious what you think the obvious <laughs> answers are. So go ahead. I would I would love to hear what you think the what, what's your what's your initial thought. Well, you know, it's interesting that he said that he opened his eyes and saw nothing. Um, so I'm I'm wondering. So here's my thought: is was this Jesus's way of illustrating to him, you know, you were spiritually blind, right? You were spiritually blind. You thought you knew the law really well. You thought you were a Pharisee, Pharisee of right. Pharisees. You thought you knew everything really, really well. But right. the reality was you were you were blind. And what I want you to see is I'm going to show you just how blind you really were. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, three days, right? I mean, mm. Jesus is in the grave for three days. There's there's symbolic things there going on with the numbers, too. Um and that his opening of his sight and being able to see again was this physical picture of the spiritual reality, what Jesus did to him to open his eyes, to see the truth of the gospel, to see the truth that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, that right. he is the Savior. So, I mean, that's the answer I've always kind of thought was going on, but I always wondered if there's... I mean, I know you did a lot of study this week, and I wondered if maybe there was something else going on there. I mean, it's possible there is, right? We don't know for sure what's going on, but I, I think your answer is probably the most likely one, um, that there's a physical representation of his spiritual condition, that he was blind spiritually, that he didn't realize that. Um, I mean, again, that's where, I mean, what John Newton says in that song is, is more like, you know, we just sing it like I once was lost, but now I'm found with blind, but now I see. We, oh, that's, that's clever. Like, But I think he's illustrating something there hmm. um, in that song that is even tied to this particular story, right? Like that we are spiritually blind prior right. to knowing Christ. Like we don't even realize it. And, and you know, the, the thing is, like I'll talk to Christians regularly and we'll talk about, you know, this or that. And people, people will say things like, well, I just don't understand how non-Christians don't see this. The point is they're blind. They can't see it, right? Like right. you can present an obvious truth and because you're blind, you can't see it. It's like, it's like trying to show a blind person something and hold it up and expect them to see it. Well, they can't see it because they're blind. And in the same way, like we can hold up these obvious spiritual truths, but if a person's spiritually blind, they're not going to be able to see it, right? Like it's the work of the spirit that has to open their eyes. And so I think that's even the visual representation later of the scales falling from his eyes. Like, I think, again, I think he's doing something here physically to represent what's true of all of us spiritually, that right. we are blind and now we can see. Um, right. And that is the work of the Spirit. So I, I tend to think that's probably what's going on there. Right. Um, you know, the funny thing is, like, after after the service, one of my kids was most concerned. They're like, why didn't he eat or drink for three days? Um, and I don't know that there's a great answer to that either, other than to say, like, it was such a... 
you know, there, some people speculate, well, he was fasting and looking for spiritual truth. I, maybe. I tend to think it was just such a dramatic thing. Um, like if you go through a truly traumatic experience, like you may not be hungry for a little while. You may be, you may be traumatized by it. Like right. I think it's safe to say that encountering the risen Christ and being blinded was a traumatic experience. And so I think during that time, no doubt he was contemplating things. He was thinking through what had happened, but I just think it was a really traumatic experience. And again, I, I would say this, like we, we tend to read about encounters in the Bible with kind of this casual um, way of looking at things, but Encountering the risen Christ in his glory would have been pretty overwhelming. And I think I think that's probably what's going on why he's not eating or drinking, because he was it was just overwhelming. Like right. he'd encountered the risen Christ. That is not an everyday experience. It's a very traumatic thing. So I, I would say that's what's going on there. Yeah, I always kinda of wondered that too. I kind of assumed that he wasn't eating or drinking because he was probably fasting and like really like diving into Jesus, right? Yeah, maybe he was. I just think he was probably traumatized by it too. I think it was just that that traumatic of an experience. Right. But yeah, right. I think he, he might have been doing that, sure. Right. All right, so if that was your bridge question. Right. So let's let's get to 10 and 19 then. What are, what are you thinking? What was it that stuck out to you in that section? Man, Ananias. What a guy, huh? Yeah. I mean, put yourself in to put it to put yourself in his shoes, right? I mean, and have Jesus appear to you and say this to you, that this is what you're, you're going to do. Um, and Ananias goes anyway. And I really liked where you brought out where he said, Brother Saul, right? I mean, yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, that is, that's pretty cool to think about. Like, he went from this moment of like fear. I mean, I think there's fear in what he says in verse 13, right? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saint to Jerusalem. Right. And that he's come here to do this as well. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting that he goes from saying, you know, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And then he says, but now he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. Right. Like, that's a real there's interesting. There's a reversal there. there that, there's this reversal here that's going on. But that he goes, that he goes and embraces him and calls him brother and just, you know, I mean, that obviously the Lord did a work in Ananias' heart at that point too, right? To go from where he was to where he got to at that point. Yeah, I love Ananias' story. Um, it, does, it does take some courage to do what he does, um, to go. But I think, again, that speaks to God working in Ananias' heart, that he goes from being fearful to the Lord telling him, no, go, go tell him. This is what you have to tell him. And then his first words out of his mouth, at least as recorded here, is Brother Saul. Right, and I do think it speaks to the importance of, like I said yesterday, that we are a part of a body and that we're a part of a family together. Um, that there's not a, you know, Saul wasn't just saved to be this lone ranger Christian; he was saved to be a part of the body. And I think that that is the function of Ananias here. That Ananias is accepting him into the body. And and again, um, your passage that you preached on last week is is going to say that same thing here coming up in Acts 9 that Barnabas is going to be no he, he's a brother he's, right and now again it's easy for us to read this and think well you know why didn't the church accept him why couldn't they see the grace of God but put yourself in their shoes like this is a bad guy like this right. is a guy who's killing Christians and now here he is he's going to be a leader in the church that's probably hard to accept so Ananias calling him brother I think is a significant moment and a reminder to us of of um, just what it means to be a part of the church that sometimes there's people from rough backgrounds that God redeems and we have to 
you know, I, I think our natural tendency would probably be to be skeptical of that, and maybe for good reasons sometimes. Right. But we, right. we can't discount that God can do amazing things. Right. You know, the other thing that I, I, I do find amazing is that is that this is what Saul knows from the very beginning. Like, he knows right from the out, right from the out onset here that he is going to suffer for the name of Christ. Yeah. And then he goes and does that. Like that's one thing to be like, okay, I'm gonna go and 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 proclaim the name of Jesus and then persecution comes upon you, right? Right. That'd be one thing. But it's one thing to say in advance, before you even go the task, here's what's coming your way. And Saul goes and Saul goes right to it and says, Okay, here we go. Well, and you'd have to imagine if there's anyone who who kind of understood what that suffering was going to look like, it was probably Saul, right? Because he was the one inflicting the suffering just before this. Right. And he knew the own murderous intent of his heart as a opponent of Christ. And so for him, you would think he, he definitely understood what this meant. That, like, it wasn't like he misunderstood what the suffering would be like. He thought, oh, you know, that probably means that, you know, some days are going to be hard, like, that I'm going to be tired. Like, you know, he understood, like, suffering, because he was the one inflicting suffering just prior to this. He knew that suffering meant there are going to be some people who are going to try to kill you. Right. And there, there is going to be imprisonment right. awaiting you. And there is going to be really torturous conditions. Right. And yet he goes anyway, which I think... Like I said yesterday, I think that speaks to the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. And, and that's actually what Paul talks about in Philippians, right? That um, every, everything is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That there's this great surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That to make Christ known and to know Jesus is worth any suffering. I, to me, this speaks to the value of what it means to follow Christ. That, that Jesus would say to Saul, hey, you're, you're going to face suffering. And he's like, count me in anyway, because I know it's worth it. Um, and I, I think that should be an encouragement to us. Like, let's stop being so afraid of suffering. I, I think if I'm being honest, like I'm probably afraid of suffering for yeah. the name of Christ. Yeah, And I absolutely. think in general, because we've lived kind of protected lives here in the United States for, for quite a while, like we're afraid of suffering. Like we read about, you know, cases that are coming down the line in the Supreme Court, or we read about politicians doing this or that, like, and, and you know, I'm not saying there's not reason to be concerned. There is, but like, let's stop being so afraid of what suffering will look like. Is it possible some of us will go to jail in our lifetime? I think so. I think it is possible. Is it possible some of us are going to lose our livelihood? I think so. But I think what we need to recapture is the surpassing vision of like, Christ is worth it. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the suffering here. And again, I think Saul was in a place where he wasn't like just trying to in his mind, think, oh, well, this suffering probably won't be that bad. No, he probably knew how bad it right. was going to be because he was the one inflicting it. Right. But what he saw was greater was Christ. And that's where that Philippians passage comes in, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. I think what we need to recapture is not a, oh, it's not going to be as bad as we think. No, it might be worse. But what we need to recapture is following Jesus will be better. Um, right. And we need to remind one another of that and say, if that comes, like, let's not be afraid of it. Like, I'm not saying we should run to it and I hope it doesn't happen, but let's be people who say, no, following Christ is worth it. It is far better to follow Christ and suffer than it is not to follow Christ and live a life of ease. Right. And the truth is, like, I, I think a lot of 
um, people who would say they're Christians right now are pursuing a life of ease rather than a life of faithfulness. Mm. Like they're, they're trying to avoid difficulty. They mm. want to be approved by the crowds. That's why they're bending their doctrine. That's why they're saying, oh, okay, well, let's, let's rewrite kind of what Scripture says. Because in the end, they've chosen a life of ease rather than a life of faithfulness. But Paul would say that is a terrible exchange. Like faithfulness is better than ease. Like to follow Christ is better than suffering, right? So I, I think we have to see the calculus here is not that oh, suffering won't be that bad. It might be terrible. Like, but following Christ is worth it. That's the point, I think. Right, right. It's good stuff. Anything else you want to talk about here in Acts 9? So I was trying to find a verse and I, I was and I couldn't find it. If I mean, do you have anything else you want to? No, go ahead. Because yeah. I can, I, we can go on a rabbit trail. Sure, that's kind of rabbit trail it up. Because I've, I've heard. So, uh, my pastor at my previous church, he had a theory about what the thorn in Paul's flesh was. Okay, and it was directly tied to his eye blinding. Okay, thing because it talks about these scales fell off with his eyes. Sure, and I think there, I think it's in First or Second Corinthians where, ta- where, where Paul talks about the brotherly concern that the church had for him sure. where it says you were even willing to gouge your own eyes out for me. Okay. And then you read in other places where, where Paul says, look how I wrote with large sure. print yeah, okay. what it was. And so his theory was that he thought that his thorn in the flesh was his eyesight. And as it's connected a, to this event. And right? it's connected to this event that, that, that this was even the thing that was going to keep Paul humble throughout his ministry, because that's what he said his thorn in his flesh was for, right? Yeah. Was to keep him humble so that he would not exalt himself. That even within his conversion experience, as great as it was, there was also a humbling experience to keep him dependent on Christ throughout his ministry huh. life. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I, I, I've heard that his thorn, I've, I've heard ideas connected to his eyesight before. Like that's yeah. the most common thing I've heard. Right. I don't know if I've heard it directly tied to Acts nine. Right. But that makes sense. I'm you know, I think at some level we're just speculating we don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, that seems possible. Were you persuaded by that argument? I thought it was interesting. Uh yeah. I, I thought it was interesting to, especially to tie it to this moment, to think that even within this moment there was a moment of humbling too within it. Yeah, I think that's possible. You know, I, I think often about that passage in the the thorn and him asking for the thorn to be removed and, right. and God doesn't and I think right. there there is something about that that's just you know I mean I guess to put it in our context like we're obviously praying for our son to be healed but sometimes sometimes God doesn't fix everything here um, right. and again I would say but what that speaks to is this like this 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 morning I was reading in Romans eight. Uh, for, consider, for I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Right. Um, I, I think there's a, a grittiness to the Christian life that sometimes you're going to suffer. And right. sometimes God's not going to remove that suffering with a thorn. Like, it's still going to be there. Right. But, like, we have to remember the all-surpassing worth of what we're pursuing instead, which right. is the glory of Christ and the future glory that awaits. Yep. And so, however, whatever the issue was, you know, and maybe we'll get to heaven and realize, well, it actually had nothing to do with his eyesight. Right. Glad you guys thought that. Like, that's not what it was. Maybe, maybe it's something else. Like, I, th- I think the encouragement of that is to say, yeah, in this world, there's going to be tough stuff. And, and I think we have to brace ourselves for that, like, so that we're not surprised when it comes. That's why I think Peter says, don't be surprised at these fiery trials when they come upon you. Is there something strange is happening to you? Um, because we need to realize, like, 
Paul's call to suffer, I don't think it's just unique to Paul um, or Saul. You know, I, I think it's, it's something that's probably true for all Christians. And to realize that sometimes there will be thorns, whatever they may be. That God just doesn't take away, but it's because there's something greater that He's doing in us, right? And I think that's that's the encouragement of what's going on. So, yeah, I don't know if I have anything else on Acts nine. If you don't have anything else, I got no more rabbits. You got no more rabbits to chase. I like rabbits. All right, so we'll we'll save the rabbits for next time. There we go. Uh, next week we are actually looking at Acts nine thirty two to forty three, or yep, Acts nine thirty two to forty three. Um, so that should be a good, a, a interesting one too. The healing of Aeneas, and then Dorcas is restored to life. Great name, by the way, Dorcas. I've noticed there's not a lot of little girls running around named Dorcas, uh, which is too bad because she was a great character. But look forward to diving into that next week. Um, I Just a, a total side note that I don't think really has anything to do with anything, but I'm going to bring it up in relation to the passage we looked at today. In verse 11, the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Um, that street actually interestingly enough, still exists. You can still go there today. Oh, really? Um, in Damascus, and it's no still kidding. around. It's one of the oldest streets in the world. So mm-hmm. um, I, that doesn't really have any... I didn't bring it up yesterday because, I, well, I mean, it's a cool fact, but it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. But we're on the podcast, so I think I can share cool facts. That street is still around. So if you want to go to the street called Straight, you still can. Um, now, I don't know if you're going to be able to find that house real easy, but um, you can right. go to Damascus and you can find the street called Straight. You know, I did think that was interesting that you brought up how far away Damascus was from Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, what do you say that was? 135 miles. 135 miles. Like, so it's interesting, like, that the church had already spread that far right. up to this point. Yeah. And, like, why Saul headed 135 miles away. Like, that's really interesting to yeah. think about. Like. Now you'd think there was enough people to persecute where he was, right? Like, right. So I don't know if there was a significant movement of God that he'd heard about, and that's why he went right. there. Well, and he's pretty determined to get... Well, yeah, that was the thing I thought. You know, I think there's a popular conception that Saul was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. Like, I, don't, like I looked through 9 and 22 and 26, and unless I missed it, I don't see anything about a horse. Like, I, I right. think he's more likely he's walking on foot. But even right. if we grant that he's on a horse, he's still going to a lot of trouble, right? I think it's more likely he's walking there, which would have taken a long time. Um, but even if he was on his horse, if that is such a thing, like, this is a lot of trouble to go there. And right. it does speak to his hatred for Christians. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting point too. So I guess I need to chase one more rabbit before we were done. So that's the rabbit we chased there. The street called. Street there we go. Alive. Fantastic. So there you go. All right. Next week, Acts 9, 32 to 43. In the meantime, keep looking up, keep looking to the word of God. <laughs>